morning this morning. How is everybody? Very good. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to open it to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Our church's normal way of teaching from Scripture on Sunday mornings is to take a book of the Bible and we take the time and just plow through it. That way God's counsel is shared to us in its entirety. We're not just picking and choosing to hear what we, what we think we need and what we think we want to hear. That way God's Word speaks to us. And we're plowing through Ephesians. Today we'll pick up with actually the second half of an idea that was begun last week. Pastor Hunter um, did the intro to my sermon. So he preached through chapter uh, 2, 1 through 7, and I'm picking up where he left off. And we'll read in just a moment verses 8 through 10. While you're turning there, I'll uh, start off telling us a little story. <clears throat> I was about 12 years old. I was in middle school. And uh, the church I was going to, uh, we had a Wednesday night youth meeting, uh, Bible study, that we would have every week. I always looked forward to going to it. Uh, not so much for the Bible study part, but for the uh, um, athletic things we would do afterwards. So after the Bible study was done, we'd always go outside, and we had a big field. We'd play football. We had a basketball court in the back. Uh, we had this big graveyard in the back behind the church, and we would play epic hide-and-seek in the wintertime when it got dark early. That's exciting right there, hiding in a graveyard, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, so there's one particular uh, Wednesday night. We were all out there tossing the football, and parents started coming and picking up kids, and one or two would leave here or there. We'd keep playing. A couple more would leave. And in the end, it was just me and our youth pastor were the only ones out there left playing football, just tossing a football with each other. And he seized the golden opportunity of having me cornered to start asking me spiritual questions. And so he asked me first, so Matthew, are, are you a Christian? Well, duh, yes. And then he asked the follow-up question. So Matthew, how do you know? And that's when I began to explain my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. And so what I said to him is, well, of course I'm a Christian because... My dad is a pastor. I go to youth camp during the summer. I go to church, and um, I'm a pretty good person. I do good stuff. And those literally, and I remember it like it was yesterday, those are the four things that I pointed to as the evidences of how I knew I was a Christian. And what he said afterwards stuck with me. He said, Matthew, based on what you told me, I don't think you were a Christian. Say what? See, I'd never heard that. Up to that point, I thought I'm safe. I thought I was good. I thought I was going to go to heaven when I died, and I was going to be with Jesus forever. But he told me, I don't think you're a Christian. And he began to describe to me. He actually took me to his office. He said, what you have described are things that Christians do, but they are not the things that make you a, that make you a Christian. And so he took this little gospel tract out. You've probably seen them before. And it walks through passages in the book of Romans that point you towards uh, helping you to see your sinfulness, how you find righteousness in Christ, how you place your faith in Christ. And he walked me through these things, which growing up in a pastor's family, growing up in church, I'd, I'd heard those things. But once again, it was in one ear and out the other. But, but the thing that stuck with me for weeks and months to follow was the fact that he said to me very clearly, I don't think you're a Christian. And so, it was actually several months later that... Uh, there was an, that God did save me. It was through an altercation 
with my younger brother. So me and my younger brother, when we were growing up, we did not always see eye to eye. I was the middle child, and so I was the good one. And he's the younger child, and he's the spoiled brat. I hope he's not watching this new seed. <laughs> Just kidding. But no, the reality is, is we butted heads all the time. And if there was an opportunity for us to get at one another, we took it. And this particular day, we were at each other's throats. Uh, we were all but throwing punches. And my mom was just exasperated with us. You boys, just, just go to your rooms. Just go to your rooms. <laughs> so we went to our rooms. And they're sitting in, a, in my room by myself, sitting at my desk. I, I was just pondering, like, why do I have this brokenness in my life? Why is it that I cannot help but be mean and cruel and treat my brother this way. There's something wrong with me. I am broken. And I realized in that moment that there was nothing that I could do to change myself. There was nothing I could do to fix me and to change the trajectory I was on. And so in those moments, I just, in prayer, just, God, this is who I am. I'm broken. I can't do anything. I need you to fix me. I need you to change my heart. And it was in those moments that God did a miraculous work of waking me up in my heart. He saved me. He gave me his Holy Spirit that day and gave me a sense of his presence and of his joy that I had never experienced before. And it has stayed with me ever since. And I thank God for that. That day when I was in my room, I was not looking for God. I was not looking for him. I had done wrong. I deserved to be punished for the wrong things I did. But God showed up for me. And in that we see God showed me grace. He gave me something I did not deserve. When I deserved the opposite. And so when we come to the book of Ephesians, what has, we've, what has transpired up to this point is God, or through Paul, we are wanting to see a glorious picture of God's grace. So beginning at the, at the very end of chapter 1, Paul has a prayer. He's praying, to, he's praying to God that the Ephesian church will know the greatness of what God has done for them in Christ. And then he jumps into chapter 2, and he's giving us a picture of what that looks like, of our fallen state, of him waking us up. And he says, all of this process that God has done is Grace. And so what we see here is God is gracious to us. And Paul is wanting us to see that displayed in our lives. And so we'll read this text in just one second. But I want to pause for a moment and let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time together around your word. Because it is your word that was that you have revealed, in your word, you have revealed yourself to us. You are communicating to us. Through your word, you stir in our hearts, through the gospel, to, to wake us up, to see you for who you are, to see us for who we are, to place our faith in Christ, that we might be saved, that we might be changed and transformed, and that we might live lives that are filled with good works, Father, that we are living lives worthy of the gospel calling. I pray, Father, that you will meet with us now. Your spirit will be with us. Guide our thinking. Guide our time together. We pray this in your name. Let's take just a moment. Let's read together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. The text says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
and not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's three things I want us to point out that highlight God's grace. So we see first, God demonstrates, to his, his, demonstrates his grace to us in salvation and that he contributes everything. Second, God's going to demonstrate his grace and salvation and that we contribute nothing at all. There's nothing you got to do. And last, God demonstrates his grace to us in new creation where he has made us his masterpieces for good works. So let's tackle the first point. God demonstrates his grace to us and salvation where God does everything. The text reads, by grace you have been saved. And so what we see here in this is that salvation is completely God's doing from beginning to end. So to understand what God has done, let's back up for just a few moments and let's rehash what verses 1 through 3 has said about who we are because we'll understand God's grace better with a backdrop of what we used to be like. So for those who are believers, this is who you used to be. This is what God saved you from. Now, if you're not a believer in here, then this is your description of who you are at your core right now at this moment. And what I hope is, is that you hear God calling you out of that. He desires you to place faith in him. And so as you look at the first three verses of chapter 2, The text reads, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually spiritually dead, meaning like you were separated from God, disconnected from his life. And in that deadness, you're walking a course of life characterized by trespasses and sins. You lived for yourself, not according to the commands of God, not according to his character. In fact, it says you followed the course of this world. There's this idea that The world is like a mob going in a particular path, going in a direction, aimlessly together down this path. But it even goes on to describe this. It says, this mob is uh, following after the prince of the power of the air, according to the, excuse me, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. This mob that dead people are a part of is being led by the devil himself. And the devil doesn't want you to have anything to do do with Christ. And he's going to lead you away from him with all his strength and vigor. And it says, that is a, and it says, among such people, you once lived. And then it characterized how we lived in that mob. It says, in the passions of our flesh, we carried out the desires of the body and of the mind. The idea here is that we just did what was right in our own eyes. There was a passion, you did it. There's something you thought, I want this, you got it. No regard for other people, no love for others, no love for God for sure. You just love self. And that characterized, characterizes the life lived apart from Christ. And because of this character, because of this separation from God, it goes on to say that those who live such lives are, what it says, children of wrath. Deserving of God's punishment because of our rebellion, our private revolutions that we wage against God. Our sins is first and foremost against God, and we deserve to be punished for that. Now, something I want to say real quick. Those who are dead don't realize that they're in this state. And they need to be woken up. But they do not have the power to wake themselves up. So 
to understand this, think of sleeping. It's like sleeping. When you're asleep, do, do you realize that you're asleep? No. So you might, you're, when you're sleeping, you're in this dream state where your dreams are you know, foggy and disorienting perhaps and disconnected. But, but that's the reality that you feel, that you think is reality. What you are unaware of is that there is a better reality. You just have to wake up. And so the thing is, is what we have to realize is, is dead people can't wake themselves up. They need someone outside of themselves to do a spark within them to wake them up. And so dead people are walking around like zombies, spiritual zombies. Their bodies are alive, but spiritually they are dead. They have no control over waking themselves up. So speaking of zombies, how many of y'all like zombie movies? A few of y'all. There is a zombie movie out there. I don't watch zombie movies, but my wife twisted my arm a few years ago to watch one particular zombie movie. It's not one of those glory cons where everybody dies. It's, uh, it was actually a love story. So the name of the movie is called Warm Bodies. I think somebody has seen it. I won't say their name. <laughs> so my wife, for many times afterwards, could not remember the name of the movie, and so she calls the movie Zombie Love, and you'll see why in a moment. <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, so in the story, uh, there is an apocalypse that has happened, like in all zombie movies. And so the humans have separated themselves into these little safe enclaves where they live their lives, and then the zombies just roam aimlessly around the, the rest of the world. So there's this one, mo- uh, this one person that the, is, is the main character of the story, his name is R, and he's a zombie. And so the main character is a zombie. Anyway. So his main thing he does is he wakes up in the morning and just does the zombie thing. And he goes around this airport where he lives. He sees another zombie. They grunt at one another. And every now and then they get hungry, and so they form packs to go hunting to find food. And, of course, hunting means look for humans. So in this one scene, the zombies are looking for humans, and then there's some humans that have ventured into the zombie world, and they're actually looking for medical supplies. And so zombies see humans, humans see zombies, and so they start fighting. Now, during the fighting, there is a scene where the, the main character, R, sees one of the humans. And when he sees the other human, he's like, whoa, because it's a girl. He sees this girl, and he begins to fall in love with her. Talk about love at first sight. So he starts to fall in love this, with this girl. And as he's falling in love with this girl, something starts to happen inside of him where his heart starts to beat. He becomes alive. And so now that he loves this girl, he knows he needs to protect her. So he protects her by taking him back to his airplane where he lives. And as he spends more time with her, he falls more in love with her where he, and where he becomes more and more human, more and more alive as a result. And so the, the movie end, ends with the idea that, hey, if we're going to wake up the zombies, they just need to fall in love. Because love is the answer to waking up dead hearts. A really interesting idea because that's exactly what Paul is trying to get at here. Because <laughs> as we saw last week in verse 5, love was the motivation that God had for waking up dead people in verses 1 through 3. So, just to reiterate, dead people cannot wake themselves up. There has to be something from outside of them to move inside of them, to do something to wake them up, to jumpstart the heart, 
to revive a dead soul. So let's look for just a moment and let's see what God has done in order to wake up our hearts. And so to see that story, we actually have to begin before the beginning. Because before God ever created is when God started to plan out the course of the universe, to plan out our salvation. Before time began, God chose us. And he planned for us to be part of his family, to adopt us as his sons and daughters. And even though he created a perfect world, mankind sinned, and that sin was passed on to, uh, to every other human being that was ever going to live. But he made a promise. He promised, I will redeem you. I will fix this problem that you have started. And in the right time and at the right place, God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life, keeping all of the commands of God. And then he died on the cross, taking punishment that he did not deserve because In his death, he took the wrath of God that you and I deserve because of our sins against the Father. And he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose up from the grave. And in his resurrection, he proved that God accepted his sacrifice. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits right now in heaven. Where he has all authority and all power over all the universe. And he is sitting there with a power and authority over the human heart. And then he looks into our lives. And he wakes us up. He he moves in us to help us to see the fallenness that we have. He gives us a godly sorrow where we see the wrong things that we have done. And we feel guilt and we're moved over it. And we repent. We turn away from our wicked ways. We place faith in Christ. And as the theologians call it, He performs the great exchange for us. He takes the sin that we have committed and he places it on his son who takes the punishment that we deserve for those sins. And he takes the righteousness of his son, the perfections of Christ, and he places it on our shoulders. And that is how he views those who are his children. He views them with the same love he has for his son. And he justifies us. Even though we did nothing to earn that, he justifies us. And then he begins this work through the course of our lives of sanctifying us, of making us more and more like him each and every day. And then in the end, he promises our glorification, where he will return and anyone who's following after him will come and be in heaven with him in his home, where he will finally eradicate sin once and for all from our lives. And it will no longer be a problem in our lives. We will be like Jesus. This Is the timeline. This is the storyline. Now let me ask you, what did you do in this story? Nothing. So in this story, we see there's a picture of God doing things time after time after time to save you. What did you deserve? You deserve death, hell, punishment because of your sins, because of your private revolutions against God. But God doesn't give you that. He gives you grace. And so to understand grace, there's a great acronym. You've probably seen it before. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. God gives us his riches. That storyline that I shared with you, that is it. As we saw previously in last week's passages, what has God done with us? It said he has made us alive. 
He has raised us up and he has seated us with him. God gives us his riches. What did we do to earn that? What did we do to to come about that? Nothing. God gives it to us. Christ paid for it for us. So, church, what do you contribute to your progression, to, to your salvation? Absolutely nothing. God did it all. So we're going to shift gears. We've seen that God did everything necessary for our salvation and shows us our grace in that. The second point is, is that God demonstrates his grace to us in salvation once again, because you contribute nothing. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, this is the point right here that I think our hearts struggle with the most, because we have been raised in a culture that thinks that in order to get something, to receive something, you have to earn it, as if there is something you must do in order to merit what you receive. And, and, and in many ways, that, that statement is true in our lives. So if you've been a student before, if you want good grades, you have to earn them by doing diligent study. If you're an employee, you want to earn a paycheck, then yes, you have to do a good job for your boss. So if you want to earn respect, then you have to demonstrate uh, responsibility. If you want to earn friendship, then you have to demonstrate loyalty to one another. So this idea of Doing something in order to earn something we see is very true and is very practical in many aspects of our lives. But when we apply that same idea to our theology, what we end up with is heresy. And there's a lot of heresy that's out there. It's the idea that in order to be saved, you have to be good. You have to do good things. And so some people uh, will think that. Um, and as a result, they'll try to do good works in order, to, in order for God to accept them. Well, well the problem with this is, is that, well, what type of good works do you have to do? How many good works are enough? You're constantly trying to do good works, trying to do good works in this vicious cycle where you never know when you're accepted or if you're ever accepted by God. So some people will up the ante a little bit and change the theology a little bit and bring up this idea of scales of of balances. Well, yes, you have to do good works, but your good works have to outweigh your bad works. So if I've done something bad, uh uh-oh, I'm going to be judged. I've got to do some good works to counteract that. And so either either I do something to undo my wrong, to right the wrong, or I just, you know, help little old ladies cross the street more often to tip the weight. Well, what this overlooks is the fact of what Paul has already said to us in verses 1 through 3 of what our nature is. We underestimate the magnitude of the sin and its pervasity in our lives. That tips the scale in such a way that good works cannot tip it back for us. And so, in order to tip that scale back, some people try to do a certain type of works, certain types of works that would be considered spiritual works. Things like I described in my testimony in the intro, oh, God will accept me because I go to church. Oh, God will accept me because I'm from the right family. Oh, God will accept me because I've been baptized or I go on mission trips or I keep the commandments. I right the wrongs that I've done. I tithe. I pray five times a day. I observe fastings. Oh, look at me. I have earned my salvation because of the things I've done. These spiritual things. 
So whatever these individuals try to do for good works, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take their works in their hands and hold them up to God and say, look, God, look at what I have done. Because of what I have done, there's a transaction that has to take place. I do these good works for you. You give me salvation. I am now, you are now indebted to me. You owe me salvation because of this. But this is not how salvation works. In no way can we earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to undo our wrongs. There's nothing we can do to erase them. Salvation is by grace. When we lift up our hands to God and say, look at this, all we're holding up to him is dirty rags. Because even our good works done in the motivation of impressing God is a slap in God's face. Because when God looks at our dirty rags and our attempts to save ourselves, what we're saying to him is, your son, your beloved son, whom you slaughtered on the cross, you're saying, I don't need him. His work to redeem humanity was not good enough I can do better. When we do our works, good works, that's what we're saying to God. And it is just as bad. Let me give an example from Scripture. Luke 18, 9 through 14, gives us a great picture of the posture I've just described of works and of the posture he longs for us to have before him. So in this, in this you have two guys going to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, one is a tax collector. In the eyes of man, the Pharisee is the righteous one. And in the eyes of man, the tax collector is the one who has fallen and who is destitute and is the lowest of low. The Pharisee comes into the temple, all holier and thou. Oh Lord, thank you. I am a good man. Look at me. I'm not like those sinners out there, especially that guy over there. I tithe. I fast. I'm a somebody. He's holding up his hand saying, look at me, you owe me, God. Then you got the second guy, the tax collector, who has done wrong, and he knows it. But look at his posture. He lifts his hands to God too. But it says, he's on his knees. His hands are lifted to God. He's unwilling to lift his face towards God. And he says, God, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I'm falling before you. There's nothing that I can bring to you. Save me. How does the text conclude? Which man walks away justified? The one who's holding up his own works? Or the one who's here saying, God save me. He beats his chest and says, I'm a sinner. Which one one is the one that walks away justified? It is the one who does not exalt himself. So I ask, why do you think God makes salvation this way, where there's nothing we can do, rather he does it all. Well, the text answers that. It's so that boasting is done away with. Because if I've done something, I'm going to brag about it. So let me give you a picture real quick of what heaven might be like. I think when we get to heaven, entrance into heaven, you're going to get uh, an iPad of some sort, something like that. It's going to be pretty cool. It won't have any glitches. You're going to get this iPad, 
But what it's going to do is, it's, it's not to surf the web. It's to show scenes from your life. Okay? So at any moment, you can just think it, and it boop, a pop, pops up. A, a scene from your life will play right there for all to see. So let's imagine for just a second that salvation was by works. That entrance into heaven is by doing maybe the good works that I've described already. Let's just say hypothetically. That's not how things are going to be. But let's go with the illustration. So you're going to be walking through heaven. I'll be walking through heaven. We'll run into each other. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Bro, how'd you get here? Well, let me show you. So you pop up your iPad. And you pull up a scene. Look right there. Here's one of the things I've done to get into heaven. Look at that. I'm walking this little old lady across the street. Oh, how precious. Oh, yeah, you think that's something? Look at this. 52 straight years of never missing Sunday school. Not even worship service. I'm talking Sunday school. Never missed a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Well, you think that's something? Well, look how much money I gave in the offering plate. Well, look at what I did. For all eternity, you can go back and forth, back and forth, just saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at what I have done to get here. Who are you boasting in? Yourself. Is that what heaven's going to be about? Us showing off how good we are and how great we are? That's not what heaven's going to be about. Heaven's not about us. So let's, let's, let's switch the scenario a little bit. Let's actually play this out, what heaven will actually be like if we had iPads. Salvation is by grace, not by works. So when we run into each other and I see you, I'd be like, man, how did you get here? You get your iPad out and you play this story. And I watch that story and I say, oh my goodness, you did that and you're here? And you will respond by saying, yes, because my salvation is not based on the things that I do. It is based on God's grace. God took that person right there who's doing those evil things and he is doing a marvelous work in his life to wake that dead heart up. And he is changing it. He's transforming it. He's making me like himself. And I stand here before you today because of what God has done in me, not because of what I have done. And we are going to go through all eternity making much of what Jesus has done through all the circumstances of our lives and we're going to glory in His grace. And so believer in salvation, you contributed nothing to your salvation because you were dead. You could not fulfill God's righteous requirements and so Jesus met them for you. And He saved you by His grace. Now, non-believers that are here today, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to wipe away the sins you've committed. You can't even resuscitate your own dead soul. And yet, even though, unbeliever, you cannot resuscitate your own dead soul, the Bible's pretty clear. You're not to just sit around on your hands and do nothing. You have a responsibility Look at the text. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God expects from you, unbeliever, when you hear the gospel message, to respond to it. To respond to it in faith. The idea of faith is that you are trusting in something. That you are putting your full weight upon it with complete reliance that it's going to hold you up. 
Now, faith is not just a mental knowledge of, of theological concepts, knowing the gospel. Because what the Bible says is, in James 2, it says, even the demons know the gospel. But are they going to be saved? No, they do not have the kind of faith that saves. And so let me give you an illustration that will show us kind of what, what we're talking about that shows the faith that saves. So let's imagine we're all on a cruise, on a cruise liner, having a good time swimming, eating good food. Storm comes up, and all of a sudden, whoosh, the ship sinks from under us. Okay, so we don't trust ships anymore. So all of a sudden, we're going to try to save ourselves, and so we're going to start swimming as hard as we can towards the shore. But we're in the middle of the ocean. You're never going to make it. The waves are too big. The sea is too rough. But we are going to try anyway. So thankfully, the ship captain hit the panic button. Coast Guard's on the way. Coast Guard shows up and sees all these people swimming frantically away from the ship because they don't trust ships. And so they're trying to earn their own salvation by getting to shore on their own. But the lifeguards know there's no way they're going to get there. These waves are going to overtake them. They're already, they're already like drinking in gallons of water. So they, in desperation, start taking life rings and throwing it. And they throw it around the people who are struggling in the water just to keep their heads up. And it starts to pull them. Imagine that life ring gets thrown around you. The moment that life ring is thrown around you, something changes. You realize, I'm afloat. I'm not having to swim. I'm not having to struggle. This, this is great. And you realize that salvation has been extended to you. And you stop fighting the waves. You stop swimming away. You turn to that rope. And you cling to it. You put your full weight on it. And know that this is the only thing that's going to keep me from drowning in this storm. I can't do it myself. I will rely on the thing that can. And so unbeliever. God is throwing you a life ring today. He is calling you to place your full faith on Christ. And he will promise to save you. So what we've seen up to this point, God's grace has been demonstrated to us in salvation through God does everything to save us. Second, he demonstrates his grace to us in salvation in that we don't have to do anything to earn it. And last but not least, he demonstrates his grace to us in new creation where he makes us his masterpieces for good works. Verse 10 reads, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The language the Bible uses to describe believers after they've become believers is, is that of a new creation. Something new, something renewed. The idea is that something from the scrap heap who's dinged up and banged up and is, you know, worthless has been made, remade, cleaned up, dings taken out and made into a priceless possession, into a trophy. For is that not what our story is? If we are the people, like verses 1 through 3 describes, trapped in sin, led by the devil, worthy of God's wrath, that was, that was us, but he's taken us out of that scrap heap. 
And he made us alive, and he's cleaning us up through sanctification. He's making us more and more like his son. And so because of that, the way God sees us now is different. He calls us in the text, we are his workmanship. Now, that idea of workmanship is the idea of you you are a work of art, that you are a masterpiece. Now, the purpose of God's recreating us is for the purpose of doing good works. Now, these good works, as we've been talking about, are, they're, they're not the basis of our salvation. We've already made that clear. Our good works do not save us. But once we are saved, God's intention for us is to do good works. So works are not the root of our salvation. The works are the fruit of what God is doing in our hearts after salvation. And so what are some of these good works? What, what, is it, what does that mean? So I'll just summarize like this. The good works God intends for us to do are things in keeping with his nature and character. God is concerned with your character. He's concerned with who you are and who you are becoming. Your actions, as long as they are in line with that, those could be considered good works. I'm not going to labor this point because this is actually something that will come up more as we get deeper into Ephesians. Because chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are rich in theology. And as we see here, like the part we're talking about is God's creating us to do good works. As we get to the second half of Ephesians, the final three chapters, what, what, God is, or what Paul is writing is, is that this is how our faith is lived out. These are the good works that we are to be about doing. This is what he's creating in us to do. And so those are things that you're going to see in time. And so there's one more thing Paul emphasizes here about grace concerning the good works that we're to do. So he shows us that, yes, he's created us to do good works, but these good works that we're to be about doing, it says he actually planned them before time began. So God knew who was going to be saved, and he planned what we're to be about as believers. Mind-blowing, isn't it? So let me end with like one more illustration to help us to see some of this, to see it fleshed out for us. Uh, a few years ago, it's been literally like seven or eight years ago, um, the art museum here in town had a major exhibit. It was a, a Rembrandt exhibit. So if you know anything about art, Rembrandt's a big name. So he's a somebody. He was actually like one of the artists that was like majorly popular when he was alive. He didn't become popular once he died. He was, he was a somebody during his lifetime. And so I uh, go with a group of people, and we're looking at these canvases. You go from one, oh, that's nice. Oh, look at that. That's lovely. Oh, here's one more. Okay. okay, I'm not that kind of a nerd. <laughs> not saying that art is nerdy. I just never had it. Actually, I work at a frame shop now, and I see lots of people's art, and everybody has a different taste for things. I've never seen anything of Rembrandt's quality in my frame shop. Anyway, so when you go to see an exhibit like this, you're not there to see paint smeared against a canvas. That's not what you're there for. When you're looking at these different paintings, you're looking at the intricate detail that is there the precision of the brush strokes. You're looking at how he is using shadows and light to pop a picture so that you can see depth and emotion in everything he is painting. Now, when you go to a museum and you see Rembrandt, 
you are not going to look at the paintings. No, you are going to glory in the artistry of the one who painted them. You are going to look at the genius of the man who put it on canvas. And so, believers, you are God's masterpiece. Church as a whole, we are God's masterpieces in an exhibit. Why? So when the world looks in upon us, and he begin in the world fine-tune examines the lives that we live, they will see that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were once led by the devil, that we were worthy of death, hell, and punishment. But God has made us alive. And he has changed us and he is shaping us and he's making us more and more like his son each and every day. The world is going to see that. But it's not the glory in you. When the world sees that, they're going to say, wow, who is this God that you serve? You are God's masterpiece to fulfill the works that he designed for you because God is concerned about his glory. He, through you, is preparing glory for himself. He is making a name for himself, not for me and you. So as we conclude, if I was to be asked today, Matthew, how do you know you're a Christian? There's only one response that I can even give for that. I'm not going to point back to the day I was saved. The reason I know right now in this moment that I'm a Christian is because I know who I was. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And I know I deserved death, hell, and punishment because of my sins. But I know that God has stirred in my heart by His grace to save me. And that's the only response that we can give for our justification. We know we are saved because we are trusting in the grace of God. Let's pray together.